you know, and good leaders will feel that they have that responsibility, not just for the business to survive, but for the people to be well within that. You know, so over half of British people are experiencing high levels of anxiety, you know, and CEOs and leaders are not exempt for that. You know, and I think it's really important, similar as we would talk to and talk about mental health first aiders and finding networks and support groups for employees to connect with, it's the same thing for leaders, you know, the same advice we would give to our employees is we, we need to find that for ourselves. Welcome to the HR L&D podcast with your host, Nick Day, CEO and founder of JGA Recruitment, specialist HR recruiters. Tuning into the HR L&D podcast will help you to discover strategic growth concepts, leadership development strategies, and the values and behaviours that drive organisational change and success. Together, let's empower our workforces, diversify our thinking and achieve significant HR success. Hello and welcome back to the HR L&D podcast. As you all know, I'm hugely passionate about bringing you the best speakers, the best content, the best interviews that are going to help you all navigate your HR and L&D pathways more efficiently. And today is no different. But before I tell you about today's fantastic guest, I want to take this quick opportunity to ask you all, just take a moment to review this podcast if you can, share it with all of your HR L&D colleagues, friends, and together we can make this the most listened to HR L&D podcast in the world. If we do that, we can really make a difference. Right, without further ado and talking about making a difference, I am delighted to welcome Amma Afrifachi, Head of People, Wellbeing and Equity at Mental Health First Aid England, also known as MHFAE. Now, they're a social enterprise focused on improving the mental health of the nation. And AMA has been championing diversity and inclusion with different industries from startups, tech, professional services, legal, financial services, and more. She's a valiant cultural builder. Her specialism span across people experience, workplace culture, diversity and inclusion, mental health and well-being and corporate responsibility. She's experienced leading the design, analysis, and implementation of people-centric products and services, inclusion and well-being initiatives. She's a fellow of the Royal Society of the, for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufacturing and Commerce, and she considers herself, although I'm sure she'll tell us more about it, <laughs> to be a valiant culture builder, helping companies improve their culture, inclusion, well-being, and employee experience. It's enough for me. I want to welcome Amma to the show. Amma, how are you doing? It's great to have you today. Hey, Nick. Thanks for having me. It's just so weird sometimes hearing that playback of, I guess, what I've done and what I continue to do. Because um, you kind of just, well, for me, it's just an ev- everyday thing. So thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> Super excited to have you. And it's so important we have people championing such important issues. So before we jump into that, there's so much I want to talk about today. In particular, I want to focus on mental health in the workplace. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about your background today, what sort of led you to becoming uh, in the role that you are at, at Mental Health England today. Sure. I mean, you mentioned most of it when you were introducing me. I think my, um, I always say say I fell into HR because I think when I started, I guess, my career, um, I wanted to be a lawyer. So I actually started doing the law degree. And when I was doing my law degree, I realised actually that I was very much more around the people element of stuff. And that probably wasn't for me. Um, So when I finished my first degree, I naturally just went into working in legal. So because that's the degree I did, you know, and again, I'd done different facets of legal. I did um, intellectual property. Um, I also did criminal law. So I was supporting. So I was doing a lot more kind of, I guess you could call it admin sort of support staff work 
Um, and I really enjoyed criminal law because it was very much about the people. Um, but then I also realized that actually maybe more so it's more of a people thing. And I was very much connected with justice and all that stuff. So as I was kind of figuring out what I wanted to do, I, I stumbled onto my master's and I, um, well, not stumbled onto my master's, I actually decided I was going to do a public relations, public communications degree. But in that, I was actually thinking more about international relations. Um, and as I was doing that, I got a, my first career jump in corporate social responsibility. And this is where I thought, yes, this is where I need to be. This is more around me. It involves people, but it also revolves a sense of responsibility outside of just making profit um so yeah so you know and i guess to fast forward i have quite a squiggly career from the introduction that you made for me but i'm you know i actually hold true that career because for me i always find that i fell into and i always find that diversity and inclusion felt found me so i moved from corporate responsibility into um, diversity and inclusion and i really wanted to make a difference and i felt that i made a difference in that but then I think as I started doing my diversity and uh, continuing with my diversity degree, I felt, um, sorry, career, I found that it was actually more so around the cultures of the organisation I worked with that actually would more empower me and enable me to do what I needed to do. And some cultures were great and some cultures not so much. Um, and in that journey, I think my first connection to well-being was when I actually went through my own experience around my well-being. And that was when I was made redundant for one of my roles that I was in. and. It almost was like I was forced to stay still because up until that point I'd been studying and then I went straight into work. I didn't do these, you know, I didn't do these career gaps or traveling the world that most students do. I literally went straight into the world of work and I was working since. And, and for the first time, because I was forced to stop working and figure out what I wanted to do, I was in a state of not confusion, but just overwhelm and didn't really know what that meant or what that looked like and also I had lots of questions of whether I wanted to go back full-time or whether I wanted to be a contractor um so you know I just kept as the, as the saying goes I just kept going on the grind and I didn't realize in that moment when I was forced to stop that it actually had taken an impact on my mental health and well-being until I started my next role and I always say this role with Mental Health First Aid England comes full circle because that was the first time I actually was connected with Mental Health First Aid England. But I was, I guess, their client because in the role that I was working with, I was doing inclusion, but I was also mainly focused around well-being for the staff in the organisation I was working for. Um, so I went on the two-day Mental Health First Aid course, the adult course, and that was the first time I actually connected a lot of things around my, my my mental health, my well-being, and connecting to past events and, and situations in my life that finally clicked for me around how poor my mental health was because I wasn't, I didn't take time to acknowledge the trauma I had been through or just the situations I had been through. And for me, that was really important and really crucial. So after that role, I went on to do and wanted to work in startups because I've always wanted to work in startups and tech more so, and I got the opportunity to but even within those cultures, I realized that actually the environments you create for people's well-being is really important because we, we spend so much time at work and even the world of work and the future of work is changing that we really need to take a minute to understand how we treat our people and how we lead from a people-centric perspective. And so as I was going through my own journey, and I'm still going through my own journey about my mental health and well-being, I'm realizing the environments that work well for me and the cultures that work well for me very much different to other people but it's essential to understand that so actually as I was doing the contracting and the startups um, this role came about I actually came into Mental Health First Aid England 
as the head of culture and well-being to focus mainly predominantly on that. And a year on, I've now adopted the people team and all things people, including um, culture and, and equity and well-being and equity. Um, so for me, I think it's all kind of rolled into this position. I'm also a firm believer in God. I'm a Christian and I do believe that the path that you create, carve and you crave is also carved out for you in that sense you know we are all on this planet for a purpose I truly believe that and so for me I guess my career journey in a nutshell because I have been waffling for an hour <laughs> for right now but I'll wrap it up but in a, in a nutshell I do believe that whilst um, I fell into my career and I fell into this I also felt that, that that is part of my purpose whilst being here on this planet is very much around the people-centric element in the workplaces, but I mean, you can adopt it anywhere else, but specifically in the workplace, what does it mean to truly adopt a culture of inclusion included and included embedded in that as well-being? They're not separate entities. They should be together. Um, so for me, yeah, in a nutshell, that's kind of my career and how I, how I came about to be where I am. And also I think there's very something different about working for an organisation where the mission of that organisation impacts the nation. Sure. You know, nothing against um, companies that are obviously are huge brands and are, are profit driven. Absolutely. But within those companies, I think they need to also think about the corporate social responsibility element there. But there is definitely something truly different around being passionate about where you work because you believe in the mission and vision and values of that company, whether it is a um, tech for good, not for profit or a product or brand that you believe in. I think it's a wonderful story because, you, as you say, you started almost like a client of or a customer of Mental Health England. You've come through, so you're kind of intrinsically linked to that business. That gives you that passion, that 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 sense of purpose. And it's great to be able to represent an organisation where, as you say, it's not just a job for you. This is a part of your mission, part of your goal to really help others. I think that's fantastic. I saw on the um, on the website, the MHFA website, that they, they said that focusing on, on mental health now has probably never been more important. And I can I can resonate with that. You know, we're one year on now from the well, over one year on now from the start of the pandemic. Many people adjusting to new ways of working. Uh, many people like myself right now working from home. I'm 200 miles away from my office in my home address here. So it has been an adjustment. It's been a positive adjustment in many ways for some that really wanted that flexibility, particularly for those that were always told they could never work their role from home. And now they've proven that they can. But there's also, I'm aware that there's also been a mental health aspect from feelings of isolation and, and other things that come with it. So I'd love to know from your side, the kind of impacts you've seen on the mental health of the, you know, within the UK and, and further afield as a result of some of the pandemic, the changes forced upon us as a result of the pandemic. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's a really interesting point and valid point, because I think up until the pandemic, mental health had come some way, but not a huge way in itself. And I think because the national impact, it literally shone a spotlight. It, I think it is significant in the sense of mental health challenges for UK workplaces. I mean, if you think there's lots of research, as you pointed out to it, you know, the Centre of Mental Health predicts that 8.5 million or more adults will need mental health support as a result of COVID-19. So it's imperative that employers play their part in creating a culture of care. Um, you know, I referred to before about it being people centric. I truly believe that if you take care of your people, they will take care of your business because there's an element of that humanity that you're looking from it from a people centric perspective. You know, our research with over 2000 employees found that almost a third, that's about 29 percent of workers, never discuss mental health in meetings um, with their line managers, which is particularly concerning. 
especially during these challenging times. You yeah. know, the pandemic has laid bare the pre-existing inequalities, whether it's gender, race, and, you know, e e economy. So in turn, that all of that stuff exacerbates them. Um, so there needs to be a serious attention. And I think, and a need for employers to start to rebuild, but rebuilding and thinking about their business plans, their people plans, all their plans as a holistic ecosystem with the perspective of inclusion and mental health being in there. You know, employers can drive a positive transformation in the workplace when it comes to mental health and performance through bringing together those two things around diversity, inclusion and well-being and mental health. And as I mentioned, if they look at it from a whole organizational approach um, and think about the support and protection that is needed in terms of mental health and um, of their employees and well-being of employees, but thinking about the regular touch points in which they can have that, it becomes integrated in their day-to-day. -day. So regular well-being check-ins, encouraging and demonstrating self-care practices, you know, flexible working arrangements, what does that look like? But having that conversation and having that piece around people being able to talk about their experiences on a one-to-one -one perspective, but also in a team perspective. Those are some of the points I would probably speak to when we talk about that. It was quite interesting and, and really encouraging for me to hear is you're talking about you know, the, the improvement that the businesses are are making and, the, and the, the, the progress we're making, there's a long way to go in relation to being more consciously aware of our diversity, inclusion and well-being practices, which is fantastic. And I know there's an awful long way to go yet, but it's it's been a, you know, a topic of conversation for many businesses. Now, you often don't hear mental health talked about in quite the same way. There's certainly, I think, a sort of stigma attached to admitting there may be a mental health issue, whether from employees or for businesses recognising that their employees potentially have mental health issues. So do you think, because as, as companies have looked at their if we look at in inclusion, diversity and well-being as an example, they seem to have looked at those aspects and kind of given the, those elements of their business, their own little performance review to say, are we doing enough? Can we do more? But do you think businesses are doing that from a mental health perspective? Do you think the mental health situation needs its own kind of performance review internally to see how things are working? I think things should be integrated. I think sometimes I understand why you'd want to separate something in order to get a grasp of it before you integrate it. But I think if that's the approach that you want to take you should always have in the back of your mind or well, more so not the back of your mind the forefront of your mind of if we are for example isolating this to actually concentrate and focus on this in terms of mental health how do we always need to remember to integrate it back into everything that we do so what we need to understand is businesses are businesses and they're there to make profits it's the bottom line if they don't make a profit they don't exist and then there's another you know issue around unemployment which also impacts mental health and well-being. Absolutely. Yeah. I think we can't deny the fact that businesses are created for whatever their purpose is. If it's a profitable business, it's to make money and to obviously increase their brand. You know, the, the, there's a key thing around ensuring that whilst that is whatever the bottom line is, that there is still underlining impacts to well-being and mental health. And I think you raised a really interesting point around people are okay to talk about well-being because that is less of a stigma and less of yes. a really in-depth thing to talk about. Almost sounds positive, doesn't it? Exactly. So it's yeah. kind of like, yeah, you know, and it's it's very much around the feel-good factors around yeah. things. When you talk about mental health, because people find it very awkward or still very much a stigma around how to discuss it, they would rather package that as something else. Yeah. And I think just like when we talk about inclusion, when we talk about institutional racism and racism in itself, it's a topic that you feel uncomfortable with, but you have to get uncomfortable with that 
You have to get comfortable with your uncomfortableness in order to really deal with the issues. I would advise, and I think I also speak for Mental Health First Aid England in terms of us as an organisation, when we do talk to other organisations that want to do our training and you know, consult with us, it's very much around, again, really having that open discussion and creating that safety to have that discussion where the stigma is reduced in the workplace, where people can talk about their mental health, how they feel, and that perspective, and also the support that they can get from that, which ultimately does then tie into their well-being. If you don't have good mental health, you can't have good well-being. If that culture isn't inclusive, it exacerbates how that individual or those groups feel or are impacted by their mental health and well-being. You can't separate, I don't feel you can separate the two. So ultimately, Going with it with the whole holistic approach, again, as I keep saying, it's very much important around thinking about your culture. What does that need to look like? How does that feel? Asking your employees, your staff around what does creating a healthy organisation look like? That makes sense. I think um, you hit the nail on the head for me. We talk about mental health. We automatically or already automatically think of negative mental health. And of course, there's we can have positive mental health as well. And understanding that within a business is equally important. What's motivating people, what's making people feel great about their jobs and what they do. But I, and all I do know is, you know, going back to the work from home uh, moment, we, we have seen some statistics that the mental health, uh, negative mental health issues have been soaring. Um, so from that perspective, do you think working from home has been a hindrance to well-being or has it been a, a positive thing is it still unknown and more importantly I guess going forward for those listening to this podcast what mm. can leaders or employers do to really help support employees if working from home initiatives are going to continue sure so the first part around working from home is again you can't paint everyone with the same brush everyone's experience is different so actually I think it's it's a bit of a 50 50 for one of a better word for some people, working from home has been amazing yeah. and actually helped them take ownership of their mental health and well-being and be a bit more productive of how they integrate work life. So I was on another podcast where we were talking about work-life balance. And for me, I think that term in itself is pressure. When you try and ask, when you try and tell people to find balance, that actually kind of gives you a hidden or subconscious pressure to find equilibrium. And we know in life there is no such thing as a equilibrium in itself so I think for me addressing the terms and again I think terminology is another conversation but you know whether it's work-life balance or work-life integration because when we look at what the pandemic has done it's it's made us work from home and in a different way it's not an option to do it one day a week we've had to sit in our homes and integrate our personal lives with our work lives um, and try and find that integration where there are boundaries put in place for that to happen so, you know, I think it might be a hindrance for some people because actually we also have to understand that um, some of us have had the luxury and the privilege to have space to work in, where others have had to share property, have had to live back, move back home with their parents. And some actually might be facing a lot of, you know, fear because they leave the house to escape from whatever they're having to to not want to deal with. And I'm talking about Absolutely. domestic abuse and yeah. all that. So, you know, when you think about it from the different dynamics and the different experiences, working from home is actually a blessing, but also can be a hindrance to some people. You know, it's for some it's ideal and for some it's not, you know, it's been a disruption in the working environment, you know, but many employees are having to juggle the additional stresses of 
caring responsibilities, job security worries, and practices that are suitable for the workplace at home. So, and we've all had to adapt in ways where we would normally probably be coached into it um, slowly or whatever. We've all literally had to do it all together. So it's very challenging for everybody. And I think that that is, very, is something that we need to understand when we talk about the context of working from home in this perspective, because it's very different to the old ways of working from home. But also, I always think with every challenge and with everything that comes to us, there's always opportunities and possibilities to make things better and do things right the right way. So, you know, whereas before you had to ask for business cases and put in, you know, different ways of just having to request to work from home, it's shown, the pandemic has shown that that is not necessary. So now businesses need to think about, again, coming back to this culture piece, how do we create a culture where people can be open to discuss their concerns, feel empowered to bring their whole selves to work, think about how they work, where they work, and the way they work as a team, individuals and stuff like that. So you have to, again, apply it with the lens of not everybody feels the same, People might feel isolated and like to have that people connectivity. Some people live far away and actually working from home and having less of a commute is is working for them. So I think when you think about all these experiences, I think organisations can help support the employees by helping to manage stress in practical ways and potentially removing and reducing those barriers that come into place. So some of those things might be creating workplace culture where people have the safety and freedom, as I say, to choose how they work and where they work in and always have to opt in. So I mentioned my bringing your whole self to work, which is also something that is quite synonymous with inclusion and diversity, but it's around how you can create cultures where your staff feel that they will not be judged because of the decisions they make or because of how they want to represent their whole selves at work and how they want to work. I can't hone in enough about having regular wellbeing check-ins so, you know, you have your workload checkings or your one-to-ones and usually what happens is people just talk about work and workloads, which just still happen. But I think there should be also spaces and time set just to talk about well-being because as people managers and leaders and line managers, in order to really know your team properly and especially now that you're, if you're deciding whether to move from remote working to hybrid working, there'll be elements where people would want to shy away from, especially from an inclusion perspective, because they didn't feel included in the workplace. So how well will they be feeling included if you're doing it remotely? Things to think about. You know, I think thinking around creating channels for communication where people can actually talk to people, whether it's HR, um, whether it's peer support networks or diversity networks in, in the organization. How do you communicate and how do you enable people to have that communication, if not directly with their line managers, with other networks? Both, again, thinking about it from a perspective of remote working and in the office. Um, we've created My Whole Self MOT toolkit, which enables you to think about the questions you should be asking, which go beyond how are you doing today and things that you can do for self-care purposes to facilitate these conversations, enable and signpost people to the right places in terms of useful resources and internal well-being um, benefits, whether it's your EAP, etc. I think you've raised so many important points. I'm trying to sort of just 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 digest them all. But one of the things that really stands out, you're talking about, you know, workplace culture. And, we, you know, as a, I'm a CEO of a recruitment business, right? So we're seeing companies change the way they recruit and actually now building remote teams. And one of the questions that's come back to me is, Nick, Nick, how do we go about building a positive 
you know, remote culture. And I'll always say, well, look, your culture isn't based within a building. It's not confined by walls. It's, it's, it's defined by the people within your business and how you, you know, you can define it beyond that. And that's where you'd come in as an expert. But I thought that was quite an interesting point to play because people are still wrestling with how it works and how they can do things better. I've seen companies introduce buddies, for example, for people just have regular check-ins. So it doesn't always have to be a leader. It could be somebody else just doing regular update calls with each other. And I think I've had other businesses introduce things like events calendars where people can kind of jump in and just get involved to keep the communication, that social element, which I think can be often be so important. I think you said it's good for some and not for others. For me, it's been a blessing in some ways because I historically have always spent one week away every other week I spend away from my family uh, where, my, where my office is based, which is 200 miles away. Whereas this lockdown, I've been at home constantly with my family, which is great, but it's been harder for me then to build that, 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 that social interaction I'm so used to having with my team. So it's, it's a bit of a learning curve. And I don't want this to sound selfish, but as a, as a CEO of myself of a recruitment business, it's also been quite stressful on my own mental health. And I'm sure there'll be other people listening to this, HR leaders who have been in the you know, horrible position of having to make redundancies during this crisis. Entrepreneurs have had to put their teams on, on furlough and make some really difficult decisions during this pandemic. And it's, you want to look after the well-being of your employees, but have you found that as a result of that, some of the leaders that you work with maybe have neglected their own mental health? And what advice would you give to those to those people? I'm, I'm sure there'll be many listening to this that are thinking, ah, yeah, that's me, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. You know what, Nick, I think you, you raise a really good point because often we see our leaders as superhuman and, you know, because you are a leader, you're, whether it's a CEO or head of director, you are ultimately sometimes put on, a, on a, a pedestal that is so high because, you know, and also I think sometimes hierarchy plays into that too. But, sure. you know, there is something around and you hear these words being bantered around, you know, authenticity, vulnerability, leading with kindness, but they are all really true and really real because, you know, it, it has been a difficult time for many business leaders, you know, managing the pandemic, trying to look after their customers, their employees, you know, and because they will look, more so the employees will look to leaders to think, well, how, what are you going to do? How are you going to, how are we going to get through this? How are we going to survive? So often we have to take on the brunt and I'm speaking as a, as a, you know, a leader within my own organization and also talking to various leaders and also within my own organization. This, we have this responsibility for our people. You know, and good leaders will feel that they have that responsibility, not just for the business to survive, but for the people to be well within that. You know, so over half of British people are experiencing high levels of anxiety, you know, and CEOs and leaders are not exempt for that. You know, and I think it's really important, similar as we would talk to and talk about mental health first aiders and finding networks and support groups for employees to connect with. It's the same thing for leaders, you know, the same advice we would give to our employees is we, we need to find that for ourselves. We need to be honest in what we need help in and to seek that support that is needed. You know, I think having um, the support peer groups within other leaders is also good, you know, because then you're not you don't feel that sense of isolation or being alone. You're able to share your problems and think about, you know, within the communities, the leadership communities you join or the networks. How do I get through this? And that's by sharing your experience for people to help support and share their own experiences to do that. So I think for me, it's really important that, you know, there's that saying you can't pour for an empty cup and that really is applicable to leaders. And also when employers, and I know there's sometimes that there is news that we don't entirely want to share with our employees or we can't share everything with our employees. But I think having that conversation and having that piece around the honesty 
and sharing how you're coping with it and how you're dealing with it also opens up to that thing around role modeling. There's a whole thing around being able to see and that allows you to resonate and also allows you to have that compassion and empathy. So for me, I think for leaders, it's very much the same rules that MOT toolkit I mentioned before is how, how we as leaders take that on board to do it. How do we carve out that time? How do we create those boundaries? What are the support networks we have that enable us to do the things that we do on a day-to-day basis and not leading from that, that element of fear, but having that vulnerability and the authenticity in our own journeys and sharing our stories with our staff, but also with our networks. I think that in turn also helps create that culture. You, you know, I agree with you, culture is not about four buildings. Culture is never stagnant as well. Culture is always ever evolving according to whoever that workforce that you are creating it for looks like and feels yeah. like. So there's a very important piece around making sure that as a leader, you do lead by example and you do take that time out and you, you are open to, you know, the expectation of setting boundaries and but also being open to the expectations of being very much approachable in that sense. We are all human. And I think the key thing that we have to also realize is whatever stage in your career is as, as an employee or employee, you know, employer, the more senior you go, your responsibilities are different. And they look and feel different. And so, you know, having that, also having that open conversation to understand that, you know, leaders will come from a different perspective because their day-to-day is how do we keep this business sustainable and how do we keep our people healthy and well. And well. Um, and from an employee perspective is how do we keep ourselves well, but how do we also contribute to the business? And I think just understanding those narratives and connecting that again back to inclusion and well-being will help around just building a culture of inclusion and well-being. So I hope I've answered the question, but I think it's the same thing. I think we do need to take that time out to look after ourselves and to show that we're doing that so that our employees don't have to think that they always have to seek permission to do that. Have you ever asked yourself, how can any recruiter understand my HR recruitment challenges? Please don't give up on your hiring challenges just yet. Here at JGA HR Recruitment, we appreciate the difficulties associated with attracting, recruiting and retaining top human resources talent. We also understand just how costly a poor hire can be. JGA HR Recruitment would like to partner with you to help you overcome your hiring challenges. Contact us today on 01727 800 377 or visit jgarecruitment.com to find out more. Great. No, I think you put that brilliantly. I love your point on um, cultural evolution. You know, from a recruitment perspective, we get so many clients saying they need to be the right culture fit. And when there's a term I, I hate because why do you want something to fit it? You want someone to evolve your culture. You should be looking for someone who can evolve it, which obviously lay, layers into diversity and inclusion as well. Because, you know, what haven't you got in your business that can bring you new ideas and, and, and new changes? And, you know, don't always look for, to, for replacing the same thing you had before. This is your opportunity to find all the things you didn't have in your new hire. And let's look at how we can really evolve your culture that way. So I love the fact you, you commented on, you know, culture is always changing and is always evolving. I, 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 that really resonates with me as a recruiter anyway. Of course, you, I mean, you work with many um, senior leadership teams to embed and integrate your organisational culture through behaviour, uh, processes, systems. What does that involve? And what are the common challenges that you often have to overcome then when you are dealing with changing organisational cultures? So it's just, I was actually having a conversation with one of my direct reports this morning about change. And um, I said to her, her, actually, not a general sweeping thing, but I think some people, it's not the element of change that people don't like. It's the element of fear 
that comes with that change. Because ultimately, when change comes, we either have to decide whether to adapt and go with it or not be involved in that process and find something else. If we're talking about, I'm talking about workplace culture and I guess jobs as opposed to life, because that's a whole new conversation, a similar element. But, you know, so I think it's, it's calling out what the actual issue is. Is it fear of what change might bring versus the actual change or is it change itself? The biggest challenges that I've seen and come across and even shared with amongst um, sort of just culture and inclusion um, networks is, is the mindset of change. So it takes a long time. And ultimately what we're talking about culture is about behaviors and mindsets. You can put in, as I call it, the blueprints, whether it's protocol processes and systems to enable you to get to that change of behavior and mindset. But initially it's taking people on that journey that is actually the most challenging thing. And I also think that collaborating along that journey can also be quite hard. And depending on the size of your organization, if you're a small startup, actually it's relatively easy, easier, um, but compared to a much bigger organization and actually also a global organization at that. So what I found more so around when working with leadership teams is how they involve the decision-making process and the thought-making process with employees. And often the wrong way to go about it is to make the decision and then disseminate as opposed to make that decision as a leadership team, but then also integrate in terms of involving and consulting with your employees. Because ultimately when you create things, and I've said this several times on whether it's been on panels or, you know, podcasts or whatever, when you create things for individuals and don't involve the individuals you're creating it for, it usually flops. And because those individuals aren't bought in, you haven't had you haven't had the buy-in from the start. And I think when we talk about buy-in, we always talk about it from a leadership perspective. Because yes, of course, they have to approve, they have to get the buy-in in terms of leading by example. But you also have to get the buy-in of your people when you're talking about engagement. And ultimately, at the end of the day, whatever you create has to have that element of engagement and participation from employees. Otherwise, it's going to fall flat. So I think some of the learnings and findings that I found just just working with different organizations, but more so different leadership teams, is how open they are to the conversation, the communication, the collaboration, not just within their own leadership teams, but also within empowering their employees to have a say but also have a way in which to create. We always talk about having a seat at the table. It's not just okay to have the seat at the table. If you're giving someone a seat, make sure that they actually are contributing and what they are coming and bringing with is implemented in in, in everything. But also thinking about when it's necessary to consult because also too many cooks, and I'm using so many analogies at the moment, (laughs) too many cooks do spoil the broth. Too many people involved in something can either stifle or delay. So the question is understanding who needs to to be brought in at what point and what time and making sure that those voices are diverse and the people that you're consulting are are diverse as well. Um, So actually in understanding the dynamics of your business and the the dynamics of your people will help you with that. I think when it comes to culture, there'll be different things that people want to opt in and out of. And that's actually quite fine. You know, how do you provide a culture where you are less rigid in some things and open in others? So, you know, I think it's very high level what I'm saying, but I guess the challenging points have always been around mindset and behavior. And in order to change mindset and behavior, you have to have that continued conversation. You have to have that continued collaboration and also have to have that continued piece of what is tolerated and what isn't, you know, um, around zero tolerance behavior, but not necessarily being about it being punitive necessarily. I mean, yes, if somebody has done something that's quite derogatory, yes, I understand then that requires discipline, but also 
when you're talking about zero tolerance, it's around that journey of, well, is it more so a conversation that needs to be held, had uh, holding a mirror up to the individual to be more aware of their self-awareness, putting in things in place in order for that in individual or groups of individuals to embedded themselves before you go through to that extreme of punitive action. So, you know, it's definitely all these things. And also, I think people being able to be open to change. I often hear the saying that that's how we used to do it or that's how we do things. Well, that's how you're going to keep doing things and you're probably not going to be here for much longer. For example, around, you know, competitiveness, around the war for talent that's going on. So, again, it's adopting that growth mindset in creating the cultures that you would like to uh, aspire to. And also being that authentic leader where you are an inclusive leader. So, you know, I think those are some of the things I've come across and have had to work with, sometimes being successful, sometimes not being successful. I think that my best roles that I've been in has been the roles that I've been empowered to truly make the difference, take people on the journey to make that difference and give ownership. So when we're thinking about ownership, more so working in people team is very much around how people teams, whether it's HR or people team, call it what you want become more business partners than paper pushers and admin people. You know, Um, it's how you create the understanding of expectation between how you work within your teams and within the business. It's all those things and never underestimating communication and communicating in different ways. Yeah, I'll stop there. (laughs) You raised some interesting points about, you know, obviously when it comes to change, you want to involve the employees, you want to get everyone's view and try and find some direction by being more inclusive with your workforces to help you find that direction. But at the same time, you want the leadership to be able to make the the key calls. And one thing that I see a lot of as a a recruiter, uh, but also through my studies in professional consulting, it was is linked to mission statements. And often these are defined by leadership team at the top top echelons of any business. And they'll come up with a great, inclusive, potentially new mission statement. It's like, this is how we're going to run the business. But they haven't necessarily consulted with their employees or they're not even, even though this statement sounds great, actually, when you analyse how the leadership team are managing a business or how employees are acting within that business, and you talked about a lot about behaviours and actions, they don't actually embody that mission statement or the values that they're trying to define either. But at the same time, I picked up on your point where you said there are too many voices, too many chefs can spoil the broth, can actually stifle it. So if there's a lot of businesses that want to get this right, they want to manage in a, a more inclusive and engaging way. And actually, I was on a, a webinar just last week on um, strategic talent management uh, post-COVID with a lot of HR professionals. And in the, a poll we ran on that webinar, the number one priority for HR professionals right now for leaders was improving the engagement of their workforces. So with that mission statement and value piece in mind, how much engagement should we be getting to try and define what an organisational mission statement is to make sure it is fair and just and, and, and inclusive of your workforce and finding that voice without stifling the progress? Because I'm a big believer in you. Should, once you've got that statement and, you under, and you've defined your values and behaviours, you should manage against them. I think it's a very, for me, it's a strong management tool to say, right, are you embodying them or are you not? But what yeah. advice would you give to companies that are looking to really you know, find their mission statement for 2021-22? Uh, do you know what? I think unless you're operating in a flat structure, which usually comes, I guess, with startup mentality and you've got yeah. a small team and, there's, and, you know, and as you scale up, then you start to a bit more structure unless you're operating a a flat structure where everybody I guess is equally responsible with their titles you will always have employees that will look to their leadership that's what they're there for for direction so there's nothing wrong with leadership formulating what they see the mission and vision of the organization will be and constructing that but then once that's done 
sharing their views and thoughts and allowing employees to feed into that. So this is our mission and vision. Also, you know, values, people, organizations often look at their values every three to four years and also mm-hmm. their mission. Well, if they're not, they should be to yeah, see sure. if it's still relevant and if their mission and vision is still the same and it's still relevant as well. Um, so there's nothing wrong with, I don't think, for leadership to get together to think about, okay, well, these are our priorities for the next X, Y, Z years. Does our mission, vision, et cetera, values, purpose still fit that? And if not, as a leadership team, where do we want to drive our business for it to be sustainable? Because ultimately, employees will be looking to that uh, your leadership team or their leadership team for direction. Often, sometimes when you come in like, okay, well, you know, we're having a blank canvas. What should we do? Some employees might be like, well, hang on a minute. Isn't that what you're here for to tell yeah, us sure. or to show us or, you know, to show us what our North Star should be? And then for us to then input into that North Star. So, you you know, I think there's an element of doing the work. And I do think that leadership teams should be able to carve out what that mission and vision is. But then to then share that with their organization and more so their employees to say, this is what our views are. This is where we see our direction. We've had that thought. This is our statement. What does that look like or feel like to you when you read it? And also with the values, you can come up with values. But then again, you can involve your employees by saying, these are the five values we think that actually are still fitting to us today. When you see these values, what does that look and feel like to you? You know, let's yeah. ha- you can, and whether you sense check that via doing hacks, hackathons, uh, surveys, whatever mode of apparatus you want to gather your staff voice from, you can do that and then finalize it by saying, we as a leadership team came up with these values, we heard you, or we came up with this mission statement, we heard you, we've tweaked it because we've heard your voice. This is now what it's like. We've heard what you've said about how you resonate and connect with our values. So we've written the statements according to that. So this is the final version. So people then feel that they've actually inputted into something. It might not have been the whole thing, but at least it's something before you then disseminate what the final version is. And again, it's understanding the dynamics of your business to understand how that lands and how you do that. Because ultimately, if you've got thousands of employers capturing the voice might be very difficult so thinking about okay well if you've got thousands of deployers in different global economies or whatever it is then you might have to do the legwork and then invite them in to say these are our values but then allow them to create what that means for them within their own regions and within their own teams etc but still making sure that they're still aligned to the center of what the true values are so there's different ways to do that and I think it all depends on where you are in your journey what the size of your company is um, and truly figuring a way that is bespoke that works for you. It's better to include than to not include. And also the levels of that inclusion has to be authentic. So if it's sometimes it's a starting point, but also checking in in various ways, it's really important that you understand how your, your people like to be communicated and how they like to get involved. Because there's some employees that just want to come and do their work and don't want really to get involved in everything else. So it's not everybody that would want to be involved in, but at least creating a space a channel an opportunity to get your employee voices heard when it matters most and at the right time you will find you get a lot more engagement from staff than actually just dictating to them what, what's been done and what should be done. 
No, that makes sense. That makes sense. I, I sense, you know, with the work that you do, we could talk for hours about so many hot topics for learning and, and, and development directors and HR directors that are listening to this podcast. But I'd like to finish with this. <laughs> some, some of my research for, for the work that you're doing at the moment, Amos, talks about how you've been leading projects in relation to race equity and, and you've been a racial sort of justice project lead as well. What kind of work has that been involving and what have been some of the projects, um, I guess, findings or outcomes for, for, for your most recent work in, in, in that regard? Yeah, no, a lot of my, I guess, my race equity work has been more so with Mental First Aid England. Yeah. Um, I mean, in my other roles I've done inclusion and that is also equality in race. Uh, well, not just race, but equality in general. For us, we began our journey last year, um, like many organisations around our statement of intent. So for us, it was a conversation that started with our CEO after the uh, murder of George Floyd. Um, having a conversation, bringing us together as a, a whole team, a whole organisation to talk about what has happened and the impacts it has on our people of colour and black people, employees. And then to that effect, what then happened was we had a few more conversations as an organisation and we all agreed what our statement of intent was and how we were going to actually action and commit and our commitments. So when we launched our statement of intent, which I think we published in July, we talked about what that meant. We made a statement of what that meant. And with that came our 14 or 15 commitments. And those 15 commitments we looked at as our organization, as a holistic organization, what that meant for our touch points in terms of our central team, our staff, our internal, our instructor member community. So these are instructors that deliver our courses um, and also how we influence in our community in general, whether it's around lobbying, et cetera. Um, but also what happened with that was um, we had to take our organisation on a journey of becoming an anti-racist organisation. And so for me and one of my other colleagues, we designed training around just understanding what racism means, um, the historical context of it, and what does that then mean for us as an organisation. And through that journey, we then now created um, leads to look at our, our um, commitments so within that, within the commitments that we're doing in-house, but also externally, we all have main leads that will actually lead on that. So there's a lot of things around our training, <clears throat> having our training, our materials, how the expectation of upskilling our, our, our internal community, thought leadership, all of that stuff. And then we also have an internal network that actually also focuses on within the teams and the departments, how are they going to make that difference and that change? So I think when it comes to race, it's very uncomfortable for people to talk about. It still is. It's very much about the education. And funnily enough, I remember not so long ago, probably a year or two ago, when I would talk about race or, or want to talk about race in my roles that I would do, or just generally, the conversation was always around not offending white people. Or oh, not really? yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was very much around, oh, yes, but we have to be sensitive to bring them on this journey. We have to really understand that, you know, we want them to be involved. But it was, it was very, it's very different. And suddenly, you know, the murder of George Floyd happens and now everyone's like, well, no, white people have to educate themselves. We don't have to do the work. Because before that, a lot of the onus was on black people and people of colour to educate, to do the work. Sure. And it was always compartmentalised in this, this, very weird way of like inclusion um always always wrapped up into oh yeah but we can do with other things like gender and whatever because people didn't want to address the issue that was at hand and the three to 60 degree change that has happened over the year has been phenomenal but there is still cynicism as to how long the movement or how long the sustainability of this will be because you know a year on will soon be coming up and it'll be interesting to see 
what the organizations that have had the the black squares or whatever they did, how far they've come in terms of actually becoming an anti-racist organization and, and really amplifying the voices of people of color. So when it comes to things like race, it's very uncomfortable. Again, people don't want to talk about it because ultimately we talk about privilege. We talk about a lot of things that is very much around self-awareness and the default is around being defensive. So I've been blessed, to be honest, to work for an organization where I haven't had to fight the hurdles of justifying why we need to do it, which is ultimately sometimes the case in some of our organizations. They want to talk about the business case. They want to talk about the justification because in essence, they really don't want to deal with the truth. And the truth of the matter is until they're in that frame of mind to want to deal with the truth, it will never happen. So I've been really blessed to have a great leadership team. And I'm not saying that, you know, people aren't uncomfortable about it in my organization. Yes, I'm sure they are, but everybody's embracing it, which is a big difference. The amount of change, the amount of embracing that I found, not just within our central team, which is great, but also with some of our instructor member community, shows that people really are embracing that uncomfortableness and want to do something different. So I guess in a nutshell, um, the experiences that I've had from the best experience so far, which is with Mental First Aid England in the sense of being empowered to just be able to get on with it, but also understand, you know, and it comes back to leadership, having a great leader who's not just talking about it, but is very proactive in it. The same with the leadership team, having a great leadership team that is proactive in and wanting to learn a bit more and people just owning things in terms of what we have to do with our commitment. That really shows for me um, when we talk about inclusion, when we talk about well-being, when we talk about social justice, it's an adjective, it's a doing thing. When you're going to be an ally, whether it's for race, you know, um, LGBTQ community, disability, whatever the cause you want to take up with, proactive allyship is very key to this. You have to do it every day. You don't choose when you pick and choose when you want to do it, if that's the case, and you need to evaluate stuff. So, you know, when it comes to race equity work, and it's equity over equality, because equality is the end result, but you first need to have that equity where it's about fairness and having access to opportunities for all. Because again, when you have the access to opportunities for all people, people will decide for themselves what that looks like. It's not the same from my access to opportunity as to yours, as to someone else's. So it's around the equity piece first in order to galvanize the equality piece, which is the end result. So, you know, when you're talking about social justice or race equity, whatever it is, it is very fundamental that you understand that there'll be a lot of uncomfortableness that you have to deal with. We just have to get on with it. A lot of self-education, a lot of amplifying of voices and actually giving space within your privilege to enable other people to get that same access and, and build their own, you know, and a lot of people would rather think about the tick box stuff to do, which actually comes off very fake compared to the real integration of embedding things. And that is actually calling people out as well as calling people in into yeah. the journey. Um, so, yeah, so I'd say that that, that um, I don't know if I've answered the question because I always get really yeah, passionate no, I think you have. and I get into that zone. That's <laughs> great. I mean, I've got huge, huge admiration for the work. I think the fear is really interesting for me as a you know white Caucasian male. It's I've had that fear, but at the same time, I recognise that I can't understand everything because of the, the, the privilege, as you put it, the position that I'm in as a white Caucasian male. I can't understand everything. What I can do is bring a voice to the table and try and get others to do the same, to promote better equity. We, we've, we've, we're a small business of 15 employees, but we have our own diversity and inclusion steering committee. We meet 
every single month to talk about all the things we could do better. We minute it, we try and improve it. And that's a very small step for us. But if all businesses start to do the same and we start talking about these things and trying to be do all the things we can to be more inclusive and fair and, and all those things that come with that, I think hopefully we can start making progress. But I understand the fear piece because I have it a little bit as well, but you, you've got to try and overcome that if you want to make change. But that's, that's, I think, that, like I said before, when we're talking about change, I don't think it's about change that people are are not happy with or comfortable with it's the fear of it and fear yeah. overrules so many things in our lives and we have to understand what that fear looks like and why to enable to discern what we need to do to change you know I'm learning even within this within my own within you know my own journey and you know I think the key thing around when we talk about race equity or anything to do with inclusion is very much around understanding you're fearful but getting over that fear and actually enabling yourself to go on that journey of learning because very much like culture it's an ever-evolving thing it's not stagnant it doesn't change but also I think you know if you apply with the lens of I'm going to speak on behalf of marginalized groups or people you're going about it wrong because that's not what allyship is you don't speak on behalf of people you create a space for them to speak for themselves and you uplift them and amplify them in that way. You support them, you speak with them, not for them. It's the same around, you can never put yourself in my shoes because you never know, you can never do that because you will never know what it's like to be me. But if I share my experience, you can acknowledge and then you can you can hear me, you can see me, and then you can start to think, okay, well, how do I make my journey better for, well, you know, how can you help make my journey better or whoever, you know, the group or the group that you're representing or the cause it's very much around that servitude attitude as I like to call it in terms of it's that self-awareness and also selflessness you know and enabling people to empower themselves well I think we've talked about mental health today we've talked about (laughs) culture we've talked about race equity at the end and hopefully if nothing else this podcast is going to amplify the amazing work that uh, Mental Health First in England are doing at the moment, particularly yourself, uh, Amma Afifa Chi. So thank you so much for joining me today on the HLND podcast. Of course, if people are interested in finding out more about the great work Mental Health First in England do, please do visit the website. I will put a link in the episode notes. You can go there direct to MHFA England. Um, I'll put the uh, the web link directly in the notes as well. That's uh, .org, by the way, not .com. Their, their ambition is create a society where everyone can thrive. They believe in zero stigma surrounding mental health. They want mental health to be openly discussed and supported. It's something I hope we've uh, attempted to do today on today's HLND podcast. Uh, they have got some amazing resources on that website as well. Some training courses you can undertake, free resources, things you can download, uh, in particular about working from home for those interested in, in that content. So please do check out the site and, and, and make it work for you. I will also include uh, some, your LinkedIn profile, Amma, if anyone wants to connect with yourself on the work that you do as well. Is there any other um, places we can find you or anything else you want to do? Oh, yes. We are all over social media Excellent. for all our socialites. So um, we are on LinkedIn. Uh, we're also on Instagram and we are also on Twitter. So as much as also with our website, do follow us on all those social media platforms because we'll have lots of updates we also have a youtube page um for all our um, webinars and all our um, video content too so be sure to follow us there too super well i'll make sure all of those links are easily accessible just go straight to the show notes uh, for the podcast right now and you can find those and of course if you're an hr or lnd professional listening to this podcast you need support with any hr related vacancy 
please do give me a call. I've been specialising in this area now for nearly 18 years. It's a long time, and I'd love to show you what a great HR recruitment experience can look like. Uh, you can get me at nick at jgarecruitment.com or give my team a call 01727 800 377. Just leaves me to say one more final huge thank you, Emma, for joining me today. Thank you to, to all the listeners me. and viewers who have tuned into this podcast, and I will check out with the next episode with you all real soon. Take care of yourselves and each other. Thank you, Emma. Thank you. Have a good day, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into the HR L&D podcast with your host, Nick Day, CEO of JGA Recruitment Specialist HR Recruiters. If you need any help with the current HR or L&D vacancy, then please get in touch with Nick and his team. All contact details can be found in the episode notes. In the meantime, to make sure you never miss a future episode, please subscribe to the show through any of your favorite podcast channels. Till next time.